morning. Let us open our Bibles, Acts chapter 20. And let us read together, beginning in verse 17 through 27. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 through verse 27. Follow along as I read God's word. Now from Miletus, he, meaning Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This is our third study through Acts chapter 20. And as we do so, we are seeking to root our study upon one critical verse in this chapter. I know, I hope you know what verse that is. It is namely verse 28. In that verse, as Paul speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he says to them these amazing words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What we have been discussing is the meaning of those words at the end of that verse in particular. What does it mean that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, obtained the church with his own blood? Obviously, the depth embedded in those words is more than we can fathom. But I have sought to show you that Acts 20 does unpack those words in very relevant ways. The surrounding context of verse 28 is a window into what it means that Jesus purchased, he obtained the church with his own blood. And we have determined that, at the very least, Jesus obtaining the church with his blood also means that through his blood, his sacrifice on the cross, he secured all the means by which the church will actually become his in time and space and history. 
it would be very strange indeed to say that Jesus obtained the church, that he bought the church, that he purchased the church with his own blood if he doesn't end up getting exactly what he paid for. Right? Do we agree on that? Everything pertaining to our redemption flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, everything. There is no blessing that can be said to come to us apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So far, we have seen three blessings or three accomplishments secured by the blood of Jesus. First, we determined that Christian missions... Okay, this endeavor of taking the gospel to the world, Christian missions will be successful. The Great Commission will be successful. Why? Because Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. Let me put it like this. Christ's blood makes the success of the Great Commission a divine necessity. It must happen. Second, Christian unity is a reality because Jesus obtained the church. Our unity as Christians is a gift, is a blessing that flows from the blood of Christ. And number three, we are able to repent and we are able to believe because Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. Even repentance and faith are blessings procured for us with the blood of Christ. No blood, no blessings. Jesus paid it all. Jesus pays the price upon the cross so that we might have how many spiritual blessings? All spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He purchased everything for us. This morning, I want to show you a fourth blessing that comes to us from the blood of Jesus. And we see this blessing manifested in a very unique way in the life of the apostle Paul. His life will put this blood-bought blessing on display for us. And here it is. Nothing but the blood can redefine the purpose of our lives. Nothing but the blood can redefine the purpose of our life. When Paul called the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet with him in Miletus, he said this halfway through verse 18. You yourselves, he said to the elders, you yourselves know how I what? How I lived among you. As the time of his departure is is drawing near, he wants to give the elders of the church in Ephesus the greatest, the most important lessons he can think of. And he begins by speaking about his own life. He talks about how he lived. Why does Paul see his own life as such an important tool for instruction. We can know the answer because for Paul, not just his doctrine, not just what he said, but his life was a living testimony to the power and the grace of Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle famously said, for to me to live is what? Is Christ. For me to live is a person is a person, is Christ. He could not have said it any clearer than that. Everything Paul was and did was bound to the power and the grace of Christ Jesus. So it only makes sense that he now points to his own life as a testament to the power and the grace 
of Jesus. Now, before we jump in, let me briefly confess something to you this morning. As I study every week, every week some passages hit my own heart and my mind harder than others. Sometimes sermon preparation is extra difficult, not only because of the demands associated with studying the Word, which are very high by nature and always, always very high, and not only because at the end of the week I have to stand here before you and give you and deliver the fruits of my study in your hearing, but also because of the spiritual conviction that comes from being confronted with a role model like Paul, a role model like Paul. My own confession to you is that this week's study has been nothing but a painful and much-needed reminder of how far I am from being like this man. When I look at my own life relative to Paul's, the only thing that holds me in place is the gracious promise of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That said... Even the great apostle Paul was nothing but the lowly recipient of amazing grace. Paul was a man purchased by blood just like we are. So as we look at his life this morning, if you get a sense of inadequacy, then welcome to the club. But remember that nothing but the blood could make Paul who he was. Paul was not a self-made project who sought to become a better you by his own strength or by discovering the champion in him. Not at all. Paul was the product of a purchase made with blood. Paul was the price for which Christ died. And Jesus bought Paul with his own blood in order to make of Paul a new man to redefine his life's purpose. Now, let me break this down for you. Number one, Jesus bought Paul for, number one, humble service. Humble service. We read in verse 19, as Paul talks to the elders in Ephesus, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all what? Humility. When we take inventory of Paul's life, especially as displayed In the book of Acts, we see humility almost as his leading quality, his leading quality. Interestingly, do you know what the name Paul means? It comes from the Greek word paulus, and it means small, little, little. That's what the word Paul means. I say that this is interesting because according to at least one concordance, The word humility means to have a deep sense of one's moral and spiritual littleness. That's humility. To have a deep sense of one's, not of someone else. Please please note that. I'm not asking you to think about the person next to you. Oh, yeah, I can see that about him. No, no, no. Of one's own moral and spiritual littleness. Let me ask you this. Would that be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about yourself? I'm such a little person when it comes to spiritual matters. How immensely powerful this is. The great Apostle Paul now saw himself as spiritually little. Little. He was a true representative of his Greek 
name, no pressure of en on anyone named Paul. He was a true representative of his Greek name. He saw himself as nothing but a lowly servant. In fact, we could say that part of Paul's greatness was precisely his lowliness. But this is not what Paul was, Paul, what Paul was by nature. That's the point we are exploring this morning. The blood of Jesus made him a new man. Remember that prior to Jesus saving Paul, he was Saul. And how did Saul saw himself? Or how did he see himself? Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. This is Paul's autobiography. This is him reflecting on who he was prior to Jesus saving him. And this is very telling. This is the life prior to Christ changing him. What did he say? Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says this, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Meaning, humanly speaking, I have reason to be prideful. I have reason to be boastful. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, says Paul. Verse 5. Here's the list of my, uh, what, what I have going for me. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people, people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was Saul. In his eyes, he was nothing but greatness. Nothing but greatness. He's the man who stood there watching as Stephen was stoned to death and approved his execution. This is the man who led the charge against Christians, arrested them, and sought to destroy the church. So we have to ask, what can wash away the sins of a man like that? What can make him whole again? Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. It is because of the work of Jesus on the cross that this man went from being the great persecutor to the little apostle. And so now, as he addresses the elders of the Ephesian church, he can point to his own life and say, because of Jesus, because of the cross, now I understand that I'm nothing but a servant. And that's the first accomplishment of the cross, of the blood in the life of Paul. Jesus obtained Paul with his blood to make him a humble servant. Here's the second accomplishment of Christ's blood for Paul. Jesus bought Paul with his own blood for selfless following. Selfless following. Verse 22. Hear what Paul says to the Ephesians. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. If anyone embodies the truth that you cannot lead others until you have learned to follow, it is Paul. He was a leader like no other, and yet at the core of his leadership was his selfless following of the Spirit's guidance. Paul was a follower first, a leader second. It was the Holy Spirit who told him to go to Jerusalem. The means of this communication is somewhat of a mystery to us, but at this point, that is not the main issue. The main issue was that for Paul, the Spirit's leading was a first priority in his life. His own personal desires 
His own personal desires were inconsequential to Paul. Now, the word constrained that you see there, the word constraint is actually quite strong. It is the Greek word deo. In a material sense, it means to bind or to fasten or to put in bonds, literally to be fastened with chains. In an immaterial sense, this word means to be put under obligation. This is the sense that best fits verse 22. Paul knew himself to be a man under new management, new lordship. For Paul, he was no longer the one calling the shots in his own life. Instead, it was Jesus by the Holy Spirit. But Paul wasn't just a follower. He was a selfless follower. Notice what he says. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. That statement opens a window into Paul's newness. Life wasn't about him anymore. For Paul, life was not about him anymore. Other than Christ Jesus himself, I would say Paul was the quintessential selfless man. Selfless man. And I think he is in the Bible for us to know so that we stay humble. We could say that Paul died to self daily. His self was no longer at the center of his life. Christ was. Let us look next. Jesus bought Paul for purposeful suffering. Purposeful suffering. Read with me. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 19 again. Paul said that he served the Lord in Asia not only in humility, but also with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Go to verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. Verse 24 but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Here's yet another characteristic of Paul's life that makes me feel like a spiritual newborn baby. He knew that sufferings, conflict, and afflictions came with his calling. Paul did not know the details about what would happen to him in Jerusalem, except that he would encounter much conflict and much afflictions there. At this point, I want to point out two important doctrinal truths that we find here. First, notice with me the unity between Jesus and the Spirit. The unity between Jesus and the Spirit. When the risen Jesus sent Ananias to Paul right after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, Jesus said the following to Ananias. He said this, Ananias, Go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, meaning Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is a perfect, there is a perfect unity between Jesus and the Holy Spirit because the plan is one and the same. There is never a conflict of wills among the members of the Trinity Three divine persons, one harmonious will, one perfect plan. 
The second important doctrinal truth is one that normally hits us right between the eyes. And it is this. Since the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit both said to Paul that he would suffer, we can conclude that sufferings in the life of Paul were not random or coincidental, but divinely ordained. Divinely ordained. Suffering was a part of the plan of God for Paul. Therefore, Paul says he did not count his life as precious to him, meaning he was not a slave to his own self-preservation because he knew his life to be in the hands of a sovereign, all-powerful, and good God whose plans and purposes and thoughts will always be higher, will always be better than ours. But now we need to ask, what made Paul's sufferings purposeful? We see the answer to that question at the end of verse 24. He willingly engaged in his ministry with all the pains, with all the sorrows that this entailed, because he was sent to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was the motive. This was the power behind Paul's willingness to engage in suffering. How important was the gospel of grace for Paul? Important enough that it was worth his life as well as his death. Brothers and sisters, here's a man with a divine perspective like no other. I will say more about this at the end. For now, consider our next point. Jesus bought Paul with his own blood for fearless proclamation. Fearless proclamation. In verse 20, Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, you saw how I did not, what? Shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Interesting way to put it, isn't it? Why does Paul see the need to put it that way? Why use the word shrink? Is there something implied there? Absolutely. There's a lesson we cannot afford to miss. Let me show you another context where the same Greek word is used. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, you know the story, Paul said that he had to confront, remember, he had to confront Peter because Peter had done something terribly wrong. Peter was willing to engage and spend time with the Gentiles, even to eat with the Gentiles, as long as the Jews did not see him. Do you remember that story? But when the Jews showed up and came in the room, Peter's behavior changed. Peter was acting out of fear. He feared the judgment from the Jews. So what did Peter do? He shrunk. That's the same word. Peter, he, when he saw the Jews, he withdrew from the Gentiles. He moved away from the Gentiles. He put a distance between him and the Gentiles. He separated from the Gentiles. In that sense, Peter's shrinking was about his reputation and safety with regard to the Jews. He did not want his countrymen to think less of him for his relationship to the Gentiles. Therefore, to shrink, to shrink is to act cowardly for the sake of one's own reputation and safety. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses the same word to explain how he preached and taught the word of God? He did not shrink. He did not act cowardly when it came to teaching God's word. 
He did not distance himself from the whole truth of God's word. He preached all of it. Why would Paul put it like that? Because, here's the answer, embedded, embedded in the call to teach and preach the word of God is the constant temptation to leave things out. Things that human sensitivities find difficult to accept and even offensive. Truths that engender conflict, attacks, and even the hatred of the audience. Do some pastors and teachers shrink from the Bible today? Yes. Every time a man sacrifices the truth for the sake of what is popular, he is shrinking. He is shrinking. But Paul did not shrink. He did not distance himself from the difficult truths of scriptures. He gave everything to the Ephesians. Everything. As a result of his fearless proclamation, Paul had one blessing come to him. He had a clear conscience. Look at verse 26. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Let me put it this way. Few things can be more destructive to a minister of the gospel than when he allows for his conscience to be wounded over and over again. It eventually, it becomes seared. Paul did not allow this to happen in his life. He said, I'm going to give the whole truth and nothing but the truth. No matter what happens to me, I would rather have a clear conscience than to conceal the truth. And so Paul tells them, if any of you perish in your sins, it is not because I didn't tell you the truth, but because you didn't want to listen. As I leave, says Paul, I do so with a clear conscience. So let me just make this a little personal. If, if or when, if or when the Lord takes me away from this place for whatever reasons or by whatever means, this will be at the top of my list of desires. I won't be that concerned with whether or not everyone liked me or disliked me. Or if I was someone's favorite preacher or least favorite preacher. That's inconsequential to me. If or when I leave, I want to answer one question above everything else. Did I give GCC the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Or did I shrink? Will I be able to leave with a clear conscience as Paul did when he left the elders of the church in Ephesus? That's an important question to ask. Now, let's try to sum this up. What is the summary of Paul's life? How can we summarize his life? Turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2. I believe this is the perfect summary of everything that Paul was. And this is the perfect explanation of why he did what he did. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You know this verse. Here's how Paul saw himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The key to Paul's life was that he saw himself as a crucified man. The key to Paul's life was that he saw himself as a man crucified with his Lord, as a man whose personal desires, his personal likes and dislikes, his passions and his lusts, all of them were there hanging on that cross with the Lord Jesus. He died. Paul saw the newness of his own life as the product of the death of Christ for him. Paul saw himself as a man who, with Christ, was dead to sin and alive to live for the glory of God. That was the central truth of his life. Now the question to which I want to turn for the last few minutes, and I say the word few uh, carefully there, <laughs> few minutes, in the next few minutes, the question is this. What do we do with this? What's in it for us? Well, are you still in the book of Galatians? If yes, turn to the same book, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Keeping in mind what we just read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. But now let's do 524 and listen carefully to what the Lord is telling you and me through the pen of Paul. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The life of Paul is an invitation for us to live the crucified life. In case you didn't notice, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, which we just read, Paul takes the words of Galatians 2.20 and he applies them to all Christians. It's not just Paul that was crucified with Christ. It is all of us. It is all of us. So what do we do? We do what the word calls us to do. Here is our calling. If you're following along in the notes, our calling is to be imitators of Paul. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? Be imitators of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, says Paul, as I imitate Christ. Now, please do me a favor. If you have notes, look through that list of Paul's newfound purposes in life. And I want you to do something. I want you to highlight the ones that don't apply to you. I hope you found none. I would highly recommend, in fact, that if you... Take it upon yourself to study Acts chapter 20, verse 28 on your own, that you do so in conjunction with Titus chapter 2, verse 14. In that verse, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus paid for us with his blood in order that we might live the crucified life which looks like this. In a world of prideful self-service, in a world of prideful self-service, Jesus bought us to walk in humility. The call to humble service, the call to humility is not just for Paul and the apostles. It is for all of us. 
It is for all of us. You want to know what the greatest definition of humility is, I believe. The greatest definition of humility. Turn with me, and you, you know this verse, Philippians chapter 2. This is the greatest definition of humility in all of Scripture, I think, because it is so concise and yet so powerful. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Here is humility defined. Humility is counting others more significant than yourself. Well, that's easy, isn't it? That's so easy to do. Now, let me tell you something. It's impossible. It's impossible. This is why humility itself is a blessing that comes from the cross. Why should we be humble? Why should we count others more significant than ourselves? Because Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Next, in a world of selfish ambitions... In a world of selfish ambitions, Jesus bought us to be selfless followers who lead the way. Jesus bought us to be selfless followers who lead the way. Let me remind you of something we tend to forget. You are not your own. I am not my own. I assure you, that if we were to keep this truth at the forefront of our minds, we would avoid ourselves great amounts of heartaches. I know this to be the case in my own life. Here's another confession for you. I can tell you this with full confidence, that many of the turmoils I have caused in my own life through the years could have been avoided altogether had I been mindful of the truth that I am not my own, that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he calls the shots in my life. I've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Nothing can work more humility and selflessness in our lives than to remember that we are not in charge, but that we have been purchased with blood. So we follow the Lord wherever he leads, and when we learn to follow the Lord, we are ready to lead others. We Christians cannot lead others in the path of righteousness if we ourselves refuse to follow the Lord in what he has commanded us to be and to do. So before we lead others, let us ask ourselves, are we following the Lord? Next, in a world of despair, in a world of despair, hopeless despair, Jesus bought us Christians to see purpose in our sufferings or in our afflictions, to see purpose in our sufferings and in our afflictions. Here's a quote for you from William Bridge, powerful words. Quote, what is affliction? Affliction is all that is contrary to one's will. Can you say amen to that? Affliction is all that is contrary to one's will. Thereby, God eats out the core of our wills through afflictions. He, God eats out the core of our wills. Whenever, therefore, you meet with any affliction, pray over it and beg that God would eat out the core of your wills. And the more the core of your wills is eaten out, the more willing you will be to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, end quote. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, 
a very distant idea in the past, but that is no longer true. Now, let's make this a bit more personal. We are here today, gather in this place, at least in part, not only because Paul and the apostles engage in conflict, but the generations of Christians following them were willing to engage in a fierce struggle for the truth to ensure that the truth would go forth. The Puritans are a good example of this. J.I. Packer, in describing the Puritans, he said the following. Now, think about the life of Paul as, you, as, as I read this about the Puritans. Quote, spiritual warfare made the Puritans what they were. They, the Puritans, accepted conflict as their calling, seeing themselves as their Lord's soldier pilgrims, not expecting to be able to advance a single step without opposition of one sort or another, end quote. I think what we need, what the church needs, is for the Puritan ideal to come back to life in us. Paul was sent to conflict. He was sent to suffering. He was sent to afflictions and oppositions at every turn. The Puritans knew it as well. So should we. Light and darkness will always be at odds. If we walk in the light, the darkness will react violently. We can't expect anything else. But our afflictions and our sufferings for the sake of the truth will always be purposeful, for they will always advance the truth of God's grace in the gospel. We know that even though the truth often advances through a suffering church plagued with conflict, we ought not to forget where everything is headed. He that rides to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day, said John Trapp. Losses and crosses are the wheels of Christ's triumphant chariot, said Samuel Rutherford. We know the end, brothers and sisters. Christ will be victorious. If we suffer, it is but for a moment. The best is yet to come. And the guarantee of this was signed with blood. And lastly, lastly, in a world of easily offended ears, in a world of easily offended ears, Jesus bought us to be bold. It's getting very hard to be bold. It's getting very hard to be bold. Now remember, remember this word. Paul did not shrink. Because shrinking is a temptation. Is a temptation. Paul resisted that temptation. And therefore, Paul spoke truth regardless of how people received it. We are called to be bold for the sake of the gospel. John Flavel said, quote, Whosoever resolves to live holily must never expect to live quietly, end quote. I would like, like to alter that just a bit and say, Whosoever resolves to speak truthfully must never expect to live easily. Let me be as blunt as I can be. Let me tell you why the word shrinking is so important for us. Shrinking from speaking the truth and living according to the truth. Here's a blunt statement. And you need to examine your own heart with this. If the acceptance of the world is our idol, if the acceptance of the world is our idol, then shrinking from speaking the truth will be our act of worship. 
Remember that. If the acceptance of the world is our idol, all we want is for the world to accept me, then shrinking from speaking the truth will be our act of worship. I believe that this speaks to the heart of the so-called deconstructionism movement. A lot of people are renouncing the faith because they understand the price. We must fight the temptation to shrink from speaking the whole counsel of God. The passing popularity of a narrative has no bearing on the permanent truthfulness of God's word. We must be bold because truth confronts the world. So let us not shrink. Let us not shrink. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Brothers and sisters, we are, all of us, we are the work of Christ. We are the purchase of his blood. There are many more out in the world who are already his, obtained with his blood. They just need to hear the message. They just need for us to tell them the truth. So as we labor, let us be humble in service. Let us be selfless in following. Let us be purposeful in our sufferings. And let us be fearless in speaking the truth. For whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. Once again, only you can do the work in our hearts, even in my own life. It does not matter how much we speak, how much we listen, if your spirit is not doing the work in us. It is to no avail. So we just come to you to ask, to plead with you that you will take the words that we have meditated upon this morning and that you will do a mighty work in all of us. So help us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.